All right. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for attending this session here. Um, as a couple of people, uh, a couple of people, excuse me, I'm getting distracted by lunch. Um, as a couple of pieces of administrative information, if you would, please silence your cell phones and mobile devices out of respect for those around you. And then on top of that, uh, if you haven't already, please download the Pain Week app so we can solicit any feedback on the event and this session. So this session is Chronic Migraine Education Program, and we have three distinguished faculty. Dr. Scott Powers is a scientific director of clinical research and trials at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and he's also a pediatric psychologist in the Division of Behavioral Medicine and Clinical Psychology. Dr. Juliana Vanderplum is an assistant professor and senior associate consultant in the Department of Neurology and Division of Headache at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Bert Vargas is an associate professor of neurology and the director in the Sports Neurology and Concussion Program at the University of Texas Southwestern Campus in Dallas, Texas. Please help me welcome our distinguished faculty today. <clears throat> thank you. All right, well, good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, welcome to uh, the American Headache Society presentation on, on the Chronic Migraine Education Program. We've been uh, sort of a regular fixture at Pain Week now for, for several years, and I've, uh, I've been uh, honored to be a part of it for at least three of those years, so uh, it's great to be back. Great to have you here. And uh, we, I was just laughing with uh, Dr. Vanderplum that we had an introduction, and now I'm going to do an introduction. Dr. Vanderplum will probably introduce herself one more time when she comes up here to do her next talk. So this will be great. For the post-test, we decided that it's going to be, can you name our names? <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to go through some of the housekeeping tidbits uh, as part of the introduction and uh, just kind of lay the groundwork of what we're going to be doing. Um, <clears throat> give you some of the important uh, necessary details that we need for ACCME. Uh, the Chronic Migraine Education Program is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Allergan uh, to the American Headache Society. And, and again, this, this may be the only time I promise that I'm going to read directly from the slides, but it's a regulatory thing. You know how it goes. All right. Um, all contributors who can affect American Headache Society continuing medical education content in their respective roles are required to disclose all relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest that could be viewed as re a real-world or perceived conflict of interest. Contributors will also identify relevant financial relationships of their spouse, partner, or immediate family, and this policy is in effect to maintain adherence with the conflict of interest guidelines set by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education and the American Headache Society Ethics Committee. Uh, attendees will be made aware of the presence or absence of relevant financial relationships for any contributor who may affect the development, management, presentation, or evaluation of the continuing medical education activity. The presence or absence of relevant financial relationships for any contributor who affects content are listed in the final program, presented verbally, and in slide form. Individuals who refuse to disclose relevant financial relationships will be disqualified from being a contributor and cannot have control of or responsibility for the development, management, presentation, or evaluation of the continuing medical education activity. While I'm waiting for the next slide, void where prohibited. <laughs> All right. Curriculum developers. This is just a, a list of our all-star cast of, uh, of individuals from the American Headache Society, most of them uh, board members of the AHS. 
um, a pretty all-star cast that helped put this uh, content together. And we have another all-star cast uh, here to uh, speak on those, uh, on those topics. Um, here's the program overview. And uh, you see we've got a pretty uh, lengthy and comprehensive program today um, with, uh, with a nice break in the middle. Uh, we're going to start off today with this introduction. Uh, talk a little bit about the overview. There says, uh, it says pretest on there, and I have no idea wh why, why that's on there. There is no pretest. So for those of you that studied, I'm sorry. Um, it'll, it'll serve you well, though, I'm sure. Uh, all right. Um, diagnosis of chronic migraine and episodic migraine we're going to start off with, and that'll be Dr. Vanderplum. Dr. Powers will talk about transition risk factors and barriers to care. Um, we we uh, are really going to use that last half hour just to open it up for all of us uh, where you can ask questions if there's any specific issues that you've had with patients or, or cases or just questions about what we've presented. Please uh, use that opportunity to, uh, to take advantage of the panel. Uh, then at 1.45 after a, uh, a very nice lunch break, uh, we're going to talk about pathophysiology, and then we're going to really get down into the meat of acute and preventative treatment strategies and then close with a uh, six-question post-test. All right. So with that, uh, here's just a, a final slide with some information on resources if you're interested. Uh, AmericanHeadacheSociety.org is, uh, is the organization who is, uh, who is putting this on today. I encourage you to... Uh, if you see headache patients or you enjoy treating headache patients or you would like more information about headache patients, uh, absolutely feel free to go to the American Headache Society website or the American Migraine Foundation website. Uh, both are fabulous resources. I encourage you to be uh, members of the uh, American Headache Society. And, um, and with that, I will hand off to Dr. Vanderplum. Okay, mic's working? Great. Okay, so I am Dr. Vanderplum, as you've heard twice. Um, thank you very much for having me here at, the, uh, at Pain Week. It's my first time here, and uh, so far it seems like a wonderful conference, and I'm glad that we're able to participate. So I'm going to be talking for the next 20 minutes or so about diagnosis of migraine, both chronic and episodic. These are my disclosures. And so for the next 20 minutes, we're going to go through four main objectives. So the first of which is reviewing the steps for successful diagnosis of various headache disorders. We're going to identify the key steps for excluding secondary headache, which is probably one of the most important components of a headache assessment. We're going to discuss some other types of primary long-duration headaches, so besides chronic migraine. And then we're going to define some key headache syndromes uh, based on two main factors that are really important in the headache um, assessment, which is how many days of headache someone is experiencing and how long the headaches are lasting for. So there are seven main steps for successful treatment of headache disorders, and the first of these is obviously making the diagnosis. When patients come in, they are often most concerned about having a secondary headache, meaning a headache that is caused by something. Um, most patients are worried about things like, do I have a brain tumor or, or something like that? And often if you don't address this right up front as far as 
how you are going to be assessing them for the secondary potential secondary headaches, they may leave feeling a bit dissatisfied if they don't understand, you know, how they uh, were assessed for those things and don't understand that, you know, based on your history and physical exam, you've come to a conclusion that either you could suspect secondary headaches or maybe not. And if you don't suspect a secondary headache disorder, then you're probably left with the most common headache disorders that we see, which are the primary headache syndromes. And so it's not really good enough just to say you have headache, but rather you need to provide them with a diagnosis and educate them about what that diagnosis might be. And so there are various headache syndrome groups, so that includes most commonly things like migraine or tension type headache, and then rare headache syndrome groups like the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. And once you identify that diagnosis and educate them about it and explain why you don't think there is something else more sinister potentially causing their headaches, um, you know, then you can move on to assessing them for potential comorbidities and exacerbating factors, assessing the di uh, disability with the tax, and then moving on uh, to identifying a treatment plan, which we're going to talk about this afternoon. So when it comes to excluding secondary headaches, this is really done through the history and physical examination. Not every patient that you see with headache is going to require investigations, and the investigations are really guided by what you determine through talking, and, uh, talking to and examining the patient. And what's important to remember is that most patients are not going to volunteer this information. So there's a really helpful mnemonic called SNOOP4, although now it's become more like SNOOP5 because we just keep adding P's onto it, uh, but SNOOP4 sounds a little bit better. And, uh, and basically, uh, the S stands for systemic symptoms or signs, as well as secondary risk factors, uh, so things like being immunocompromised, cancer. Um, N stands for neurologic uh, symptoms or signs. Onset is very important, so whether this is a thunderclap headache, which might suggest something like a subarachnoid hemorrhage or sinus venous thrombosis, dissection, or RCVS. Older patients, uh, so greater than 50 years of age, obviously we are worried about things like giant cell arteritis, but it's also important to remember that in younger patients, so less than five years of age, you do also have to be suspicious if there's a new onset headache. Uh, previous headache history, so is this a brand new headache for someone, or is this someone who's had headaches, but now there's a big change in it? Um, it's not uncommon that people will come in, you know, saying they've had headaches their whole life and go to the emergency department, and they kind of just get treated, oh, well, this is just another one of their headaches. But if it's really different, you know, we have to have a high degree of suspicion that there could be something else going on. Additionally, postural. Um, Assessment is important, so is this worse when you lie down, when you sit up, or if you change position quickly, uh, potentially suggestive of something like a CSF leak. Precipitated by Valsalva or exertion, which might suggest issues with increased intracranial pressure, as well as uh, pulsatile tinnitus, and I'll throw in there papilledema. And then the newest P that's been added is pregnancy or postpartum. Um, so I think I listed more like seven Ps there, but, uh, but the bottom line is that this is a good acronym to kind of start with to remind you of important historical factors uh, to ask patients about um, and not expect that they will uh, tell you spontaneously. The physical examination uh, sometimes can seem a bit overwhelming when someone comes in, and if you kind of direct yourself to 
three key components, you usually won't miss anything major. So vital signs, uh, blood pressure, whether too high or too low, or showing orthostatic changes, can potentially provide you with some diagnostic clues. Uh, body temperature, obviously, if they're febrile, then higher suspicion for secondary causes. And then body mass index might provide you with uh, clues as far as concern for things like uh, pseudotumor cerebri or idiopathic intracranial hypertension, as well as low body mass index. Uh, sometimes those patients might be at higher risk for things like post-lumbar puncture headache. Um, head and neck exam obviously is extremely important. Um, this is important for potentially identifying the diagnosis as far as uh, cranial neuralgias, but also as far as directing treatment um, for decisions like whether you want to do uh, nerve blocks or trigger point injections. And then finally, uh, the neurologic examination. And as with anything in medicine, uh, this is something that takes practice, um, especially the fundoscopic exam. And it's something that if you don't do it regularly, you're probably not going to feel comfortable with the fundoscopic exam. And if you don't personally feel comfortable with it, then uh, you know, make sure you have an ophthalmology or optometry colleague that you uh, feel comfortable referring your patients to to know that they've had an adequate fundoscopic examination. Okay, so to summarize some of those points, the first step is obviously the history and exam. And again, reminding patients that that's actually really your biggest investigation is that assessment is really important um, so that they feel like, you know, they've received something from this and they're not just being told you have a headache, um, but understanding how you reached uh, the diagnosis that you're going to be coming to. And uh, the SNOOP4, again, mnemonic can be helpful for uh, eliciting those red flags. So if if all of that is uh, unremarkable, then you're into the category of identifying primary headache disorders. And this is where we have two big historical components that are very important as far as kind of coming to big categories of headache differentials. So the first is, in the headache world, we talk about episodic versus chronic. And so sometimes people, when we say chronic, they think that means headaches that someone has had for years we're actually talking not about how long someone has had headaches for or when they started, but rather how frequently someone is getting headaches. And so episodic is considered less than 15 headache days per month, and chronic is considered more than or equal to 15 headache days per month. So for example, chronic migraine would be someone who has 15 or more headache days per month, and that usually is for a minimum of at least three months. If they've had it for years, that's fine too, but having it for years doesn't mean necessarily chronic. It's, again, the frequency that we're defining it based on. The second um, historical component that's important is the duration. And we make this arbitrary distinction at four hours. And so less than four hours, we consider short duration. And longer than four hours, we consider long duration. And so common long duration primary headaches include things like migraine, uh, probable migraine, tension-type headache, and then the category that we're going to really focus on today is the long-duration chronic headaches. And so that's things like chronic migraine, chronic tension-type headache, new daily persistent headache, as well as hemicrania continua. I feel like I'm not pointing this in the right place. Okay. So the 
ICHD is the International Classification of Headache Disorders, and this was just recently published in its third edition. Now, this is a huge, well, a, a pretty big uh, manuscript, and it defines a variety of diagnostic criteria for both primary and secondary headache disorders, and I think what's important is to know that this resource exists. It's, this is not something that needs to be memorized from you know, front to back. It really is a resource uh, to refer to. Um, and it's also nice you know, just to kind of look through all the various listed headaches that are available or that are kind of described out there, including the appendix diagnoses, um, to be aware of the various syndromes that are described. But there are two groups that you really should know the diagnostic criteria for uh, per the ICHD-3, and that is migraine versus tension-type headache. So for migraine um, and tension-type headache, the frequency can be variable. And again, there's that distinction between episodic and chronic with 15 days being the cutoff. Duration for migraine is between 4 to 72 hours, although in children it can be as short as 2 hours in duration. While tension-type headache, it does overlap with that 4 to 72-hour window, but it can be much shorter at 30 minutes or much longer, up to 7 days in duration. Location-wise, migraine is often classically described as a unilateral headache, although 40% of patients can have bilateral headaches, while tension-type is often uh, or is classically described as bilateral. Migraine has a pulsating quality, while tension-type headache is usually a pressing or tightening. And migraine is moderate to severe in intensity, while tension type is milder. Migraine is aggravated by or causes avoidance of physical activity. And that's one of the most, um, I guess, you know, the most obvious feature that we see in a lot of migraine patients where they say they just need to go lie down or kind of stop what they're doing when they get uh, migraine. And then migraine is associated with nausea or vomiting, while tension type headache is not. And in migraine, uh, you require photophobia and or uh, phonophobia, while in tension-type headache, you may have um, one of photophobia or phonophobia, but you should not have both. Migraine, as well as tension-type headache, again, should not be attributed to another disorder because then they would be secondary headaches. Mm -hmm. So when someone presents with episodic migraine and they're starting to have increasing headaches, the most common diagnosis that they often develop into is chronic migraine, and this occurs in about 2 to 3% of people uh, per year. So to review some of the other long-duration chronic headaches, we talked about migraine diagnostic criteria in general, and chronic migraine is when you have 15 or more headache days per month, and Shortly, I'm going to review the exact uh, diagnostic criteria for chronic migraine. But to compare to uh, some of the uh, rarer chronic uh, headaches, there is new daily persistent headache. And as the name implies, new daily persistent headache is basically a headache that someone will say, and they often remember the exact moment, you know, on March 26th, 16, I was sitting at my desk and I got a headache and that headache has never gone away since. And so that's one of the diagnostic features of new daily persistent headache is this clear remembering of the onset of the headache. And with the name, it's new, it's daily, and it's persistent. The type of headache someone can have with new daily persistent headache can be variable though. So some people can have tension type headaches, some people can have chronic headaches, and 
With this headache disorder, you do have, a ha have to have a very high suspicion for secondary headache disorders and make sure that you rule them out. Um, and then for treatment of this, it is variable and we do basically treat based on the phenotype of the headache. Hemicrania continua is currently classified as one of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, uh, along with things like cluster headache and sunct. And it has been categorized with them because of the fact that it's a side-locked headache. It has accompanying cranial autonomic symptoms like tearing, redness of the eye, runny, stuffy nose. But what's different compared to the other tacks is that this one is continuous, so it's there all the time. And uh, this one is... Uh, exquisitely responsive to indomethacin. And so that's actually part of its diagnostic criteria that if you give a patient an adequate dose of indomethacin, the headache really should completely disappear. Okay, so quick question. When episodic migraine, so less than 15 days per month, progresses to a more frequent headache condition of greater than 15 headache days per month, the most common diagnosis is, and we'll just do this by show of hands, A, hemicrania continua, B, medication overuse headache, C, chronic migraine, okay, D, mixed migraine and chronic tension type headache, okay. So D is something that you sometimes see come up in people's clinical notes where they'll diagnose someone with migraine but then they'll also diagnose them with chronic tension type headache because the patients are describing that they get this milder headache most of the time. And Currently, we have suggested that really the better diagnosis to this, describe this would be chronic migraine. And that's because for the diagnostic criteria of chronic migraine, basically you have that 15 or more headache days per month, but eight of those days only really have to have migraine features. The other days can have tension type features or the patient can believe them to be migraine and um, treat them as migraine, or they treat them with a triptan, which is a migraine-specific therapy, and they are relieved. So in patients who present saying, you know, I get my migraine attacks, and then every other day I just have my regular, my normal headache, it would be more correct to diagnose them as chronic migraine rather than provide them with two different diagnoses. This is challenging, though, sometimes to make this diagnosis because it requires that, one, you have an accurate count of headache days, and two, that you actually know what the phenotype are on those days. And so that really does require the patient to keep a headache diary. Again, uh, this diagnosis is only established after someone has this pattern for greater than three months. And what we have to be mindful of is that approximately 50% of patients are using medications frequently, and so this is sometimes under-recognized and may also be a contributing factor to chronification of their headaches. But there's a distinction between overusing medications and medication overuse headache. So overusing medications is really just the idea of us, you know, arbitrarily defining a number of days of medication use that we think is too much. Medication overuse, headache, however, is when headaches are increasing in frequency as medication use is increasing. And sometimes that's a bit of a, a tricky concept because people say, well, if I'm having more headaches, I'm going to use more medications. Yes, that's probably true, but what we see is that sometimes people's headaches are increasing because of the fact that they are using medications too much. 
And to confirm this, um, you know, by reducing those medications, if you see an improvement in headaches, then that would be the best way to obviously confirm this suspicion. So the formal diagnostic criteria for medication overuse headache stipulate that, again, you have chronic headaches, so more than 15 days per month. And this was in someone who had a pre-existing headache disorder. So they've gone from, you know, a more episodic pattern and it's increased to a chronic pattern. And then as far as our days that we would consider to be overuse, this depends on the type of medication. So for simple analgesics, it's greater than 15 days per month of use. For ergotamines, triptans, opiates, or combination analgesics, it's greater than 10 days. And then for any combination, so if people are consuming uh, simple analgesics plus ergotamines plus triptans, um, it would be uh, a combination of um, greater than 15 days of regular use. Um, now, you have to distinguish this from headache attributed to substance withdrawal uh, because there are also diagnostic criteria for things like caffeine withdrawal headache, opioid withdrawal headache, and estrogen withdrawal headache, which are separate diagnoses. Now, even though we state the number at 10 and 15 per the diagnostic criteria, when you look at literature on different medication subtypes, probably even at lower frequency use in certain medications, the risk of medication overuse headache increases. And so for things like butalbital-containing medications, um, the AMPP study found that with five days of use per month, the risk increased, and with opiates two days per week, um, the, uh, the concern increased. Second question. So patients must have medication overuse to meet the diagnostic criteria for chronic migraine. Show of hands for true. Show of hands for false. Perfect. Okay, so to end on a few clinical pearls. This is one that I think is the most important as far as headache assessment, and that is really adding up the headache days versus the headache-free days. So I've had many patients that I see who come in, and when I start the assessment, it sounds like they have low-frequency episodic migraine. You know, I say, how many headaches do you have per month? And they say, four. I'm like, oh, okay. Doesn't seem like you necessarily need to be in a subspecialty headache clinic. But then as we start talking more, their four headaches are actually four attacks, each attack lasting five days. So now they're at 20 headache days per month. And then I say, and so on those other 10 days, you're absolutely headache-free. Well, no, those are just my normal headaches. So it's someone with 20 migraine days per month and then 10 of their normal headaches, meaning that now they've gone from low-frequency episodic to chronic daily headache in a matter of two minutes. And that really does change now, you know, the direction of the assessment and the direction of our treatment plan. So really important to take the time to really pin down patients. And if they don't feel confident in their answers, then have them keep a headache diary and come back and reassess the actual frequency. So in conclusion, the first and the most important step is really this distinction between primary and secondary headache disorders and explaining and educating patients on this distinction. Uh, a lot of the time, if you don't take the time to do this, 
patients feel dissatisfied with the experience, they don't understand what their diagnosis is, and they're probably going to just go to another doctor, likely get the exact same answer, um, but continue kind of feeling that they don't know what's going on and how they should be best treating it. The majority of headaches, though, are primary headache disorders, so although we have to always maintain a high suspicion for secondary headache disorders, bottom line is the majority of headaches we're going to see are going to be primary, and the majority of those are going to be migraine. The next important thing to distinguish is the episodic versus chronic pattern, and uh, we need to be mindful about assessing patients for risk factors for potential contribution to them developing chronic headaches, including things like medication overuse. And then finally, um, you know, we need to take that time, that extra minute or so, to really try to pin people down on the frequency of their headaches so that we can make that diagnosis and address it. Okay, that's it. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Vanderplam. And, and, uh, and again, we'll, we'll go ahead and hold off on, on questions until the very end. We have a nice long block at the, at the very end of the session uh, for questions of the entire panel. And so with that, I'll, uh, I'll invite up uh, Dr. Scott Powers, who's at uh, Cincinnati Children's, uh, to talk to us about risk factors and, uh, and other barriers to care in treating individuals with migraine. Dr. Powers. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. Can you hear me okay? So a lot of what you've heard already today is very clinically diagnostically oriented. Uh, what I'm going to be talking about is quite a bit of data from epidemiologic studies. So we'll talk about how those two different approaches to science might give us interesting comparisons between what you've heard. But I would like to start by emphasizing clinically the importance of asking patients, be they be children or adults, uh, don't just go on their first response to how many headaches they're having. Really ask about, you're, you'll be amazed how many times they go, oh, those are just my normal headaches. So when you're looking at frequency, the interview is very important. So I want to echo that. See if I can get this to work. So we're going to walk through transitions, some risk factors, and barriers to care with just a snapshot of each of these items. <clears throat> I don't have any f uh, financial relationships to um, disclose other than funding from the National Institutes of Health. So we're going to start off with some data from epidemiologic studies that talk about the fact that migraine is common and disabling. In fact, if you look at international data, it's one of the most disabling common chronic diseases in the world across all cultures and populations. The American Migraine Prevalence and Prevention Study is an excellent epidemiologic study conducted by Richard Lipton, Don Buse, and colleagues in New York. This was a large-scale longitudinal study in the mid-2000s. About 163,000 respondents, greater than 12, one of the few studies that's looked at actual adolescents in addition to adults. About 29,000 report a severe headache within the preceding year. That's about 18% of that sample. Uh, if you look at pediatrics, about 75 to 80% of kids have had a headache by the time they're 15. So I think one of the things to realize is this is a common human experience, and therefore the diagnostic information you heard earlier gets kind of complicated when we try and figure out all the different types, because all of us have probably had a headache 
once or twice in our lives, but it may not reach the level of migraine or chronic migraine. And in this sample, about 11.6% met the IDHD2 criteria, which was the previous version of the international criteria for migraine. So as an epidemiologic study, that actually was pretty similar to what we see in terms of overall prevalence of migraine. You'll see here that in adults, females are more commonly having migraine than males. In children prior to puberty, it's a little bit more balanced. So as I tell our patients in Cincinnati, if you're a boy, this is one of those times when it's lucky. Not always, but sometimes. Uh, Chronic migraine prevalence across both genders or sexes is about 1%. That's about the same in kids as well. And then you'll see that chronic and tension-type headache are more prevalent in adults. But just giving you a sense of the fact that we're talking about 12%, maybe upwards of college-age women, one out of four are experiencing migraine headaches based on epidemiologic studies. So one of the most common chronic conditions in the world. So if you have migraine headaches, how can we assess how much that's impacting your life? So a measure called the Migraine Disability Assessment Scale was developed by Lipton et al. And it asked about, how are you doing with work and school? Did you go? Did you not go? Another question is, well, if you were there, how did you function? So it really has two ways of thinking about our daily lives. Did you miss out entirely, or you sort of sucked it up and you went, but you were barely halfway there that day? Same thing about housework or just taking care of your own life outside of work. And then are you missing family, social, or leisure activities? The nice thing about this measure is there are some clinical grades you can use to give you a sense of, given the score, number of days out of the last three months, how is your patient sort of presenting to you, both in terms of headache frequency, but also how's that disability occurring? And you will see that this often correlates clinically, but there are times, particularly in our pediatric practice, you'll see kids that are just muscling through everything and have low piedmitis, which is the pediatric version, but really are having a frequent headache. And sometimes you see people with long-duration headache, not as many, but it really impacts their life. So I think the emphasis here clinically is you really want to see these as dual potential outcomes when you're looking at your patients. But this is a great brief tool. Uh, The pediatric mitis is more of an an interview-based assessment. I think it's always better to go back and reaffirm with your patient how are they seeing the world so when you get to this number, you're understanding where that's from, not just seeing it as a self-report measure. And then when you break down uh, episodic migraine versus chronic migraine, which is a diagnostic differentiation, not necessarily based on excellent science, just a diagnostic breakdown, 15, 14, 16, you can debate that as a clinician. But the notion in this measure of absenteeism, I just didn't make it to work, I didn't make it to college, I didn't do anything with my family, versus presenteeism, which is, I'm going, but i got to tell you, Doc, I'm barely there. This measure kind of gives you a nice sense of how that might be happening for your patient. And in these epidemiologic studies, you'll see the ratio that chronic migraine is generally more disabling than episodic migraine. That's sort of a duh statement in some ways, but I think it's important that large epidemiologic studies are showing you that, as we heard earlier, as a clinician, you might be more likely to see someone who's more on the chronic side of frequency or high disability than someone that's low disability. 
something that's as common as migraine means that in population studies, there's a lot of people in our society and others living with migraine every day that never probably see a physician or healthcare provider. And I think that's a notable thing to appreciate as well. So that's prevalence, incidence, disability from more of an epidemiologic standpoint. Headache days per month vary within people over time, and chronic migraine evolves from episodic migraine. So let's talk about variability within person over time from these epidemiologic studies. And let's start with a question. So episodic migraine can progress to chronic migraine due to treatment-related conditions. You heard about medication overuse already is one example. Exogenous factors environmental factors, headache features themselves. Higher base rate of headache may put you at risk for greater frequency over time. And patients with certain comorbidities that we'll talk about in a little bit. There are several different types. But based on this uh, study, the annual rate of progression from episodic to chronic migraine is about, who would say, 2.5%. Okay, how about as high as 7.5%? 12 and a half? 20 you'll see in a little bit that it's 2.5%. So this is a natural history of migraine uh, looking at time and whether or not someone might actually go from episodic to what might be described as high episodic. It's debatable whether or not that's 10 or 8. Two a week or more gets my concern if I'm a clinician. Uh, all the way up to that standard of 15 or more per week. So this could be the natural history of someone who progresses from episodic to chronic migraine. Wow, that was fast. Did you guys get all that? Maybe you can get this in reverse. Okay. So in the AMP study, this epidemiologic study, they looked over time, over the years, across this cohort of adults and some adolescents that were expressing, telling about their headache. And they did see patterns where there is a group of people in the population that have persistent episodic migraine. Generally speaking, you'll see here it's like one a week or less. So one headache a week or less, pretty decent acute treatment, may never even come and see a physician. But then you have the persistent chronic group. And you'll notice that's at least five per week or more. So a lot more days with migraine than without migraine. And several of the studies you might hear about later today, both in pediatrics and adults, around 20, 21 headache days a month is kind of the mean in some of the chronic migraine trials that have occurred. I'm a psychologist. This is a test in persistence. There we go. But if you look at individual variation, episodic migraine, less than 15, as you all know as clinicians, if you look at epidemiologic data, variance is normal. So some people go up and down some. Some people are steady. But when you start looking at this and talk about your patients and their experience, That's another reason why it's important to get that history of what's it been like over time, in addition to what it's like now, how have they coped with that over time, just to give you a sense of how they're coming into you, as you all know, saying, I'm someone who's experiencing pain, 
What's been your experience of that pain? And then you can explain, you know, it's very common for it to go up and down, both for those that are less than 15, and we will see it's also for greater than 15. But then here's the real information from these epidemiologic studies. So if you sort of look at a wave of over a year and a three-month follow-up intervals, there are a lot of people that have the diagnosis of migraine that go from chronic to episodic to chronic to episodic. Clinically, you might see them when they're at their height. We're all human. Things are bad. I think I'll finally go see the doctor. Getting that history may give you a sense that maybe this isn't a persistent chronic. Maybe it's been up and down. It kind of gives you a sense of maybe whether or not they have some hope that they can get better versus they're already coming in going, I don't know that you can help me. So I think those are clinically important things. And epidemiologically, it allows you to go back and say, we've studied lots, hundreds of thousands of patients, and we've got thousands of people reporting on their headaches, and it's a common experience, helping them appreciate what you know about epidemiology. And it's interesting to me when we think about this. I go to a lot of American Headache Society meetings, and we focus a lot on adults and not as much on kids. We focus on adults because we see a lot of adults, and the adults we see as specialists are the ones that are not really doing well at all. That's clinically important. That's where those clinical pearls come from. But being able to take a step back and say, what's the epidemiology? What's the population sample? I think really helps you work with your patients about saying common chronic illness, a lot of different presentations, a lot of different patterns. We're going to work with you as an individual to get you better but I've got a broader sense than maybe just the slice we see in might be tertiary care or quaternary care. So the evolution of chronic migraine is associated with well-characterized remedial risk factors, I would say modifiable. And as a behavioral scientist, I love things that we can actually change versus the things we just have to figure out how to deal with. Of course, there's called uh, acceptance and commitment therapy for those things you can't change or there's a prayer about that somewhere, I think. But. So episodic migraine, this is where you see that we can get the natural history of 2.5% going to chronic migraine. Majority of people with episodic migraine in the adult population, in the United States at least, is going to persist with that episodic migraine, but it might fluctuate up and down, up to three, three times per week, down to less than one per week. And then other outcomes for the others, and that's kind of a bucket so what are some of these risk factors that are important to us to know from a population level? Well, there are a lot of, you know, if you think about a cro common chronic illness as a healthcare provider, then a lot of other common chronic illnesses are probably going to be comorbid, whether or not they're true, true, and unrelated or not. And I think it's important to have that base rate in your mind. But in the adult studies that have been done, particularly with uh, epidemiologic studies, uh, mood disorders or at least levels of affect being sort of on the sad side or on the nervous side, are certainly comorbidities that can make it more difficult to deal with pain and may actually have a synergistic effect at the etiologic level. Other pain disorders, so multiple pain locations, as you might have seen as clinicians. Obesity, interesting, does seem in adults with migraine. If you're overweight, obese, it seems to be a risk factor for potentially going from episodic to chronic. Asthma, snoring, those type of things have been shown in epidemiologic studies. In terms of headache features, if you're having frequent episodic, you're probably more at risk of going to chronic than if you're having one a week or less. Not too surprising clinically. 
Uh, persistent frequent nausea, though, we'll talk about in a little bit. That's something to be mindful of, both in kids and adults. Uh, in kids, it'll be one of the reasons you might see a very young child. Family realizes, okay, I've got headaches. They're quiet. They're not playing, and they're throwing up. You might see those kids at three and four versus eight or nine. Allodynia, where you're sort of just super sensitive to any kind of light touch or sensation, <laughs> seems to be one of those features that might be the central sensitization of pain that might be leading you to more frequent pain. So there is some pain science behind allodynia. Exogenous factors that are known, stressful life events, not only events that look stressful but are interpreted as stressful, and positive events can be stressful too. If you've thrown a wedding lately or had something exciting happen in your life, you might realize after it's over that your migraine got worse. A head and neck injury, certainly um, brain injuries are, are related to chronification. And then caffeine use that's excessive because you can't drink enough caffeine to not have caffeine withdrawal. And you might see people that are in that type of a pattern, maybe coping with migraine. Maybe it helped the episodic migraine a little bit. Um, and then treatment-related, poor treatment efficacy. And this is, I think, a really important one. If you're a person with migraine and you see healthcare providers and you're not getting the best evidence-based care, maybe you're getting, let's wait and see, maybe come back and see me if it gets bad. If you're not getting good treatment efficacy with your acute treatment, that's not good. And that's something you should be thinking about working with your patients about. And then we've already heard about medication overuse. There's a real debate in the field about medication overuse because if you take an epidemiologic standpoint, a lot of people overuse, med overuse medicine and don't get headaches. Uh, we did a genetic study in kids that showed that there's a certain subset of kids that have certain uh, genomic profiles that if we have them stop taking their acute medicine when they've been overusing, in a month they're tremendously better. So there is a lot of biology about how our, our body might respond to frequent medicine. More importantly, behaviorally, if I'm in a position with pain and I'm taking acute treatment all the time and inevitably I come in and say to you, and it doesn't work, that's important even if there isn't a risk factor because I already don't believe anything's going to work. I need your help, right? So I think clinically the interpretation of these risk factors is important as well. So second and last question. Chronic migraine is comorbid with several medical and psychiatric conditions. What percentage of persons with chronic migraine also have depression? Would you say it's one out of ten? Two out of ten? Three out of ten? Okay, you guys know how to take tests. Five out of ten. Okay, well, in some practices it might be. It's actually 30 in the epidemiologic data. So you will see the odds ratio for chronic migraine, again, is higher to have comorbidities with some of these psychiatric concerns as well as other chronic pain disorders. Interestingly, in adults, and I always think about this as a pediatric provider, if I started about eight with my headaches and finally saw a doctor at 13 and maybe did pretty well with them in adolescence because I saw the right doctor, then I went to college and I got a little worse, and then I had a bad streak of a long time without them. If you're not feeling kind of down about it, I'm more worried about you than if you are, right? Whereas when you see kids, they tend to be more on the anxiety side than the depressed side. Uh, we see more anxiety symptoms than we see true depression in kids, not that it doesn't occur. But here, as you see, chronic, high-frequent headache going to potentially have more comorbidities that you have to think about treating in parallel. Also, other pain conditions seems to be related to that. Now, whether or not that's causative, cumulative, the way your brain changes, we don't know scientifically. 
And when the patient's in front of you and you're trying to help them, it's not so much important how they got there as what can you do to help them get better, which we'll talk about today. So severe depression, odds ratio, is higher to have a new onset chronic migraine. So if I'm someone who has depression and it's pretty severe, I might be more likely to develop migraine. Now, whether or not that's a genetic predisposition that gets unlocked or other conditions, I don't think we know the answer to that. But it does seem like there's a nice stair-step effect. So if you're even seeing someone who maybe doesn't have migraine yet, but they've got another pain condition and their depression is getting pretty high, you could see their migraine if they have them going to chronic. So we're talking about chronic progression here. Uh, persistent frequent nausea. I think this is one of the most important findings out of Richard and Don's uh, epidemiologic study. That It occurs in about 44% of episodic migraine. And if you have it, you get about a two-fold increase of progressing to chronic migraine. The good news is there's things you can use to treat a sense of nausea, maybe get that knocked down with the, with the migraine, and it does seem like that would be a reasonable thing to try and prevent the chronification. And then here we've got how well your acute treatment works, and I think this one is really important. Because every individual human is different. So whether or not it's an NSAID they're taking or a triptan or some other type of abortive agent or a device or a combination of a behavioral treatment with a medication, really honing in on what will help them get some relief from their headache, maybe having the ability to come in and get IV fluids and other medications, whether or not you actually have DHE available for inpatient care. But jumping on top of acute care and making sure it's paid attention to, this would show us is important because if I'm a poor responder, and I don't get good care, and maybe I don't try new things, I'm much more likely to have that chronic migraine occur. So this is another one of those modifiable variables that I think you can pay attention to and educate your patients about. Like, why is this so important? And why do I want you to keep this diary and tell me each time, did you catch it early? Did you hydrate with it? How long did it take to get better? Did you notice anything about it that was different? Really interrogating, see if they can be their own best detective to get their acute treatment better. Very important, I think, clinically. Uh, barbiturates, opioids, as a pediatric doctor, I don't like either one of them. We don't use them. We don't need them for headache. But a lot of people go and they get these medications. And in terms of the medication overuse world and the chronic migraine use world, they're probably not good for you. Whereas the triptans and the NSAIDs, man, they got a little risk to them, too, compared to acetaminophen. But I think these other pain medications for migraine, it just seems like we can do better with other ways of treating people. But that's hard. Someone presents in front of you and they're like, I'm almost dying here. My head's falling off. And you're trying to help them. I realize that it's, a, it's an educational moment. But the epidemiologic data would say we need to work on the kind of acute treatments that maybe have more evidence and less risk. So comorbid pain predicts onset and persistence of chronic migraine. This is another study by Lipton and Buse. Uh, called the CAMEO study. So they looked at number of pain locations, uh, excluding the head, and then they looked at cross-sectional relationships as well as the predictive validity. And the predictive validity is really, I think, what can be translated into our clinical set of questions. So here you're just saying, okay, if you've got a lot of other pain locations, cross-sectionally you may be more likely to have chronic migraine, particularly chronic daily migraine. So not necessarily new daily persistent, now you're very chronified, but you're having a headache every day. Maybe constant, maybe just 28 out of 28 days. But here where you're probably going to have other pain locations, musculoskeletal pain, 
maybe neuropathic pain, but you guys see this in your practice a lot, right? And that becomes a more complicated human being to work with. Increased odds ratios. Clearly, even when you adjust for demographics and you adjust for baseline headache frequency, you're still seeing that this number of pain locations, two odds ratio of 1.96, three pain locations odds ratio of 2.7. So now you're talking real clinical implications here. And then here, you're seeing a very similar thing over three months. So this is the fun slide that gets into a little bit of things that we'll be talking about, about intervention. So if you want to present the onset, prevent the onset of chronic migraine in your adult patients, and in some ways relevant to kids as well. Treatment patterns. Monitor and modify medication use. Consider preventive treatment and behavioral intervention. So try as be an effect, as effective as you can with the treatments you're providing, particularly looking at that acute treatment efficacy. If you can try and get the headache frequency down from maybe two to three per week down to one per week or less, you're probably putting some resilience in to not get to chronic migraine. So you're not where you might want to be, right? You might want to be at one headache a month or less or certainly disability down in that low range. But if you're moving in that direction, you can be confident helping your patient appreciate that if we look at the broad scale population-wise, we're moving in the direction of positive versus the direction we might worry about, which is why I had them really bad last year. What about this year? And like, I think we're moving in the direction to prevent that. Nausea is certainly trying to effectively uh, deal with that associated symptom and realizing that might be one of those clues. Uh, good behavioral health, uh, weight loss, exercise, good hydration, uh, good balance to your diet, good for you anyway, but does seem like based on these epidemiologic data could be a preventative measure. Uh, stress, certainly life is stressful. Managing stress, learning coping skills. Uh, people with migraines, in a very oversimplified way, right, your brain's a little bit more sensitive than others. So what do you do about getting that to where you can manage it more effectively? It's a lot about predictability. Cognitive behavioral therapies are very effective for helping prevent migraines in adults and children. Uh, snoring or sleep apnea, weight loss, those are sort of related uh, allodynia, so if, you know, if you're starting to get that centralization of pain and you're getting allodynic, can't wear your ponytail, earrings bother you, guys can't wear caps, those kind of fundamental things, that's another thing you have to think about. And then obviously knowing that you're treating the entire person. So how is the pain affecting them psychologically? How's their psychological family status affecting their pain coping? These are things that are important. But I think the nice thing is clinically it makes sense but when you look at large epidemiologic studies, you're going, yeah, these are the factors that seem to bear out statistically that are the ones that should be high on my list as a clinician to be thinking about. So when you get synergy between epidemiology and clinical experience, I think it gives you more confidence to help talk to your patient about what you know and why and why they can start seeing these things as small steps towards better versus steps versus I'm not under control and I'm going to get worse. And I think that's a big part of feeling better with headaches. Cardiovascular disease is common in migraine. Now, cardiovascular disease is common, and migraine is common. So proportionally, men with migraine, based on some of these data, may be a little bit more likely proportionally. But if you look at numbers, since women have headaches and migraines more than men, then a lot more women have cardiovascular disease, period. It's, just a, it's a mathematical fact. 
But it is something to consider, right? And, and you're thinking about treating an adult as they get older, upwards in their 50s or their 60s, and really thinking about how you can manage these comorbidities. And then cost and barriers to care. Well, Lord knows we could talk about that for two days. And I only have one slide. Uh, lower employment status in these epidemiologic studies clearly shows that chronic migraine is more of a sociological effect than episodic migraine. I don't think that should surprise us, but when you're looking at hundreds of thousands down to thousands of people, it kind of gives you that sense of like, okay, this disability scale is relatively important, and how do you go about figuring out how to live your life with a chronic illness as it's getting better are really the tools that you work with as pain experts to help your patient get better over time. And we always talk to the kids about the fact that if you're already at the point where you're having chronic migraine, we're going to get you better. You have to work really hard to get that first 10 yards. And once we get the first 10, then we're going to start passing and we're going to start going faster. So really helping your patients uh, have patience, knowing what you know is important. So hopefully this was a whirlwind tour across epidemiology for you, giving you a sense as you hear more today about the clinical care and clinical trials. You can sort of think, okay, what's the inclusion exclusion criteria? How circumscribed was that population? How relevant is that to your practice? But I think from a patient education standpoint, helping them appreciate, I'm not alone. Six million kids in the United States have migraine. They go to school, they miss school, they become adults. If you're a kid with migraine, good chance you're an adult with migraine. Although I think if we treat you, you don't end up being nearly as tough an adult with migraine. But I think those educational materials and helping them appreciate the epidemiology as you hone in on their individualized treatment plan is really a key to managing chronic headaches or headaches that are highly disabling, whether or not they're once a week, twice a week, or five times a week. So thank you for your time today, and I hope you learned at least a couple things. All right, so uh, we are running about five minutes early, so that's, that's great, unless you're really type A, in which case I'm sorry. Um, but at this point, I'd love uh, Dr. Powers and, of course, Dr. Vanderplum to come up and, and uh, maybe field some questions from you. Uh, we'll try and be very good about remembering to repeat the questions so that everyone can hear it. And uh, I haven't had the chance to talk yet, but I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not entirely off the hook. I'll, you get the tough question. I, I, okay, I'll get the, the tough questions. <laughs> any, any questions at all about anything that you heard about it or about any other headache-related topic uh, that you'd like to ask our panel? Yes? So the question was about uh, about individuals with migraine with aura and uh, and about estrogen, uh, specifically. I'm I'm guessing about use of birth control pills and estrogen containing uh, birth control pills in individuals with migraine with aura. Everyone's looking at me. Um, yeah. I guess that's because I'm a woman um, and have estrogen. So um, basically, and you uh, have the medical license. I don't. <laughs> So um, when it comes to migraine with aura and uh, use of estrogen-containing uh, supplementation, um, when you look at different guidelines, uh, basically the bottom line is that most of the guidelines, whether that's through things like the um, American Headache Society or the, inter, um, the Organization of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, 
most of them advise against the use of estrogen-containing um, supplements. Now, obviously, it's a lot more nuanced than that. So a lot of the literature upon which these recommendations were based were in a time when estrogen supplementation was much higher compared to what is used now. And so, unfortunately, studies uh, with low-dose estrogen um, are lacking. And so, you know, when we look at those recommendations, it is on old data as far as really high-dose estrogen. And hopefully over time, you know, we'll see potentially a transition there. Right now, they are listed as um, contraindicated, and that is, again, in migraine with aura, not just in migraine in general. Um, but again, you know, nuance-wise, the other thing that there are some studies that show that just increased frequency of migraine with aura uh, is a stroke risk. And then uh, some people have a reduced frequency of their aura as well on estrogen. And so then you're having this kind of difficult balance there. Um, but the bottom line is kind of when we look at the large epidemiological studies, having migraine slightly increases your risk of stroke. Having migraine with aura increases that risk. It's about two and a half times. If you have migraine with aura and you are on um, estrogen supplementation, that risk increases to about eight times, I think. And then the big, big risk is if you have migraine with aura, smoke, and are on estrogen, the risk is about 10 times. And so obviously if you can modify things outside of estrogen supplementation like smoking and other vascular risk factors, that's extremely important. Um, and then sometimes it just comes down to a very honest discussion with your patient, especially if they have really refractory things like endometriosis or other conditions that they can't treat with anything else. Um, they just have to have that informed discussion about, you know, this is the risk. Um, hopefully, you know, working with their obstetricians and gynecologists, you can find alternatives um, like progesterone only or certain IUDs and stuff like that, but sometimes there just aren't alternatives and then it, you just have to kind of accept the risk as it is. Anything you want to add? No, I mean, that was a pretty comprehensive answer. I think the only thing I would add is that um, you know, keep in mind as, as those numbers go up and as that, that relative risk goes up, remember we're, we're taking a, a relatively small number. And when you take yeah. a relatively small number and you multiply it by two, it just is a slightly larger small number. So um, I, I always mention that to my, my patients with migraine with aura who immediately begin to worry that they have double the risk for stroke and heart attack. And it's really just a good time to educate them on trying to uh, prevent and address some of those other risk factors that would make it 10, uh, a 10 time risk and, or, or higher where it actually becomes significant. Yes? So I personally try to avoid uh, butalbital-containing or codeine-containing medications altogether just because of those epidemiological studies that showed a pretty steep increase as far as headache frequency with even minimal use of those substances. Now, unfortunately, you know, especially in a, a subspecialty headache clinic, we get patients that have very complex medical histories. They have contraindications um, to multiple different medications or certain comorbidities that preclude the use of our more standard treatments. And so sometimes, um, you know, we, we are using those medications um, or you inherit a patient who's been on them forever and really doesn't want to give them up. Um, but I, I do, you know, let them know about the fact that this is not a medicine that I would be my first choice for them. 
um, necessarily and that we do try to keep the, the risk down. But if I am going to use a butalbital containing medicine at all, I would usually do it without codeine. Great. Yes? I mean, that's the real challenge with epidemiologic studies, right? It's hard to measure every variable that's out there. So I think generally with large samples, it's taken in the context of all those variables that can occur. That's probably the natural human history. But really testing out whether or not there are mechanisms or, or antecedents or consequent events related to that, that those type of studies don't get fine-grained enough to look at that. Uh, if you think about it more clinically, and what you see amongst your patients, right? If we were great at treating migraine and everyone went in and got migraine treatment and we had better evidence than what we have today, then I think you can make the argument that oh, I'm treating really well, I'm better, and when I sort of slide off, I'm not. But there, is, there certainly is the case that adherence goes down as we feel better with a chronic illness. So if it's a daily behavior, it becomes less regular. Yeah, the other challenge, and particularly with kids, is if you get a whole lot better, you forget how to go about taking care of yourself. And you like to forget about it anyway, right? Uh, so there are those variables that I don't think you can tease out, but I think in individual care, you can sort of both educate the patients about you might get this fluctuation, but that's one of the importance of self-monitoring. So I think self-monitoring is sort of a drag. With phones, it's even a drag, right? And usually with adherence to that, you can get maybe a month or two, and then people slack off. But as a clinician, you can rekindle why that was important, and that helps people get that clue of what's happening for me that might be related to my roller coaster, as Richard likes to call some of the graphs. So I think you can apply it individually, but epidemiologic studies probably aren't really getting down to that level of nuance. I also think about, um, about those natural rhythms that, that you're talking about, where, where just naturally people will wax and wane into getting worse, into getting better to address the question that comes up all the time about tachyphylaxis, right? About people who come in and say that all of a sudden their medication has stopped working, when really they may just be in one of those phases where nothing is working. And, and so I, I tend to use data like that uh, to, to cheerlead a little bit and say, okay, let's, let's try and right the ship a little bit. Let's try and do some other things to kind of get us on the right course. Um, but it may not necessarily be from the fact that just spontaneously your medication stopped working. So I, I, I do find that that addresses that question. Really, I would say we definitely know in kids that are the end of July to the 1st of September, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It's not right when school's out. It's generally when you've had a couple of months of maybe not getting up as early and it kind of gets better, but then you get slammed with all of a sudden I'm getting up at 6.30. So you'll see that in kids. I don't know that adults generally go through quite that. They don't get the 10 weeks of vacation. They get maybe one. Right? Um, but I think there is good data to show that in terms of calendar year for school attending people. Yes, ma'am. Stand up so I can see everybody.
person on cyclic vomiting yeah. syndrome. And I mean, kids. I mean, in young kids, uh, certainly they're, they're, they're sort of known uh, con uh, conventionally, sort of the periodic syndromes. Uh, and you know, the, the general thought is, if your brain's a little oversensitive to stuff, your gut might be too, and it might be something as pediatric physicians and providers were trying to figure out. Uh, it certainly can be an early indicator of migraine propensity in kids. I'm not as aware of cyclical vomiting in kids sort of being a predictor of the same phenomenon in adults. I don't know no, if you guys have so, seen that. So cyclical vomiting in general is a pretty rare phenomena. Um, I think, you know, more commonly in children, what we see just in general is that they describe headaches and they describe abdominal pain, but the true syndrome of cyclical vomiting where it's these very discrete periods of excessive vomiting and then they're well and then discrete period of excessive vomiting, that is its own syndrome is is, is actually a pretty rare phenomena in, in children as well as in adults. Um, there's increasing literature on cyclical vomiting syndrome in adults. Um, it probably is under-recognized, and I think probably a lot of, at least what the literature shows, is that a lot of the adults um, have a pretty late diagnosis. Um, and so it might be something that was started in childhood and just never really got recognized until later. Um, and so as far as good natural history, I, I don't think they just have a lot of data on it because the population that's described so far is pretty small. And then, of course, there's things like uh, cannabis, like hyperemesis syndrome that confounds it in adults as well. You had a question. Uh, yes, I had a question about those inherited patients on the butabazole and uh, codeine combination. Yeah. So for butalbital, um, I use phenobarbital to transition them off of it. Um, there's uh, specific um, ratios that you can use as far as how much butalbital they're on, and then switch that to a ratio and then into phenobarbital, and then gradually decrease them on the phenobarbital. Um, for codeine, um, I don't have a good switch to <laughs> for that. Um, but yeah, for the butalbital component, because especially for patients that are on extremely high doses, the risk of seizure uh, with withdrawal, um, phenobarbital is the, the standard for um, withdrawing patients from that. And usually when, when we're talking about someone who's using it truly that much that they would go through withdrawal frequently, we're, we're admitting those, those individuals for several days. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I would probably say that, it, well, keeping in mind that, that now we're not talking about like ICHD definitions here, we're talking ICD-10 definitions, which, which, which lack, right, right, exactly. And so um, intractable sort of implies the, the lack of any uh, relief of that headache, right? No, no headache-free periods, no headache-free days, as opposed to chronic, which really is defined by the number of 15 days or, or more. Chronic migraine can be intractable, but not all of it is. So I, I, I think that's, that's how I interpret intractable. Um, I mean, in the way that we do it in the Headache Center in Cincinnati, every migraine is intractable by ICD-10 from a billing perspective because they're there in front of you. Yeah. So, it's, so it's really a different definition than you think about. For ICD, for, it's actually the level of um, care. 
care. So if they're at a, a headache specialty clinic, they they're, they're they automatically qualify for an intractable diagnosis. Is my understanding? I'd, hmm. I that yeah. was the rumor I heard from someone. It, it I agreed. It yeah. is, but agreed. I mean, at least it, that's the way we've been taught by the coders that their intention was that if you're yeah. seeing a specialist, and in our case, it's a multidisciplinary specialty clinic that the level of care you're providing clearly is that level of disease, which doesn't make logical sense. I agree with you, but yeah. that's... None. But that's... I've never billed a patient that didn't have intractable with the new system. Yes. My question was about the slide uh, concerning the migraine and cardiovascular event. Mm -hmm. a good question for a pediatric doc. Do you guys have any answer to that? Because I don't know. No, I meant I, I know kids. I don't really know. Can, can you I know myself. Question? I'm not young. But I mean, in terms of the notion of cardiovascular disease association with migraine and then comorbidity, I think she was asking about. The slides were basically about comorbidity proportionally the males with migraine or more likely to have cardiovascular disease. But if you look at numbers, obviously, it's just a math issue that there's a lot more women with migraine than have cardiovascular disease. True. Men. True. Those are what the two slides said. I don't know. Do you have a clinical question about it? or? kind of unpacking that because I feel like that uh, there's a lot of data kind of just right. to one bar. Right. So I, uh, <clears throat> I tend to uh, approach that, that particular question by, um, by, well, with a couple of things. Number one, yeah, there are some risks touching on some of the questions that were asked earlier about estrogen uh, and about uh, people with migraine with aura and the fact that there does seem to be a pretty definable uh, increase in risk. And then to, uh, to Scott's uh, point, that then in other people you just have two very commonly occurring things that it's not unusual that there's going to be some overlap even though they might not necessarily be related. And then you do have a subset of, um, of disorders. Um, I mean, let's take catacil, for instance, that are uh, going to impart some uh, degree of a, of a vasculopathy in addition to some kind of headache issue as well. And so, um, so it really depends on the case, but ultimately, uh, for for most for most people, as they kind of transition to later years in life, it just means that uh, we're we're maybe a little bit more. Um, uh, I don't want to say aggressive, but maybe attentive to um, to changes in risk factors as they develop them through the years, and are maybe a little bit more attentive to addressing them, uh, treatment-wise. Just knowing that there are those increased risks just by the sheer nature of the fact that they have migraine. And I think from a motivational standpoint, if you're talking about a young adult or sort of early, mid-adult, right, healthy eating, exercise, sort of those preventative strategies that are more behavioral, 
if you can get sort of relief from your headache faster than how long it may take for you to prevent your cardiovascular disease, it may be something you could utilize with your patients or say, okay, these are going to be good for you overall. They're good protective behaviors to have long-term as you age. Um, but the more short-term gain may be that we can decrease frequency by maximizing your ability to be as healthy as possible. It might get you some traction on sort of the non-medication-oriented approaches to preventative cardio, cardiovascular disease care. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed the, missed the, the middle there. Please, go ahead. <laughs> So I'm going to, will you be back this afternoon? <laughs> okay. Gotcha, gotcha. The only reason I mention it is because uh, there's a specific, uh, a specific section on acute and preventative treatment. We're definitely going to discuss, um, discuss some of the newer treatments for migraine um, without, uh, w- without going into too much detail right now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's new. It's only been out for a couple of months. Um, initial studies on it uh, are very promising, especially when taking into account the um, the fact that it addresses the, the what we know about the pathophysiology of migraine. Um, to, on the flip side of this, though, it is still a, a new drug, and I think we have yet to really see, good or bad, uh, what the real world experience is going to be. And um, and so I'll touch on those studies a little bit in in the next couple of hours, but. Um, but uh, um, I, I'm not sure if that entirely addresses your question. It's, um, yeah. Okay, okay, great, great. I mean, it's very early in the science, so you've got very lean efficacy studies at this point. You've had a lot of shouting about it. Um, comparative effectiveness studies and long-term studies are going to be needed to really help us as clinicians, um, avoiding the shiny object world. If you look at the efficacy comparison, um, so I'm much more sober about the data than maybe what you'll read as a scientist, uh, as a clinician. Any other tool in the toolbox that could help with the wide range of suffering that people with migraine have excites everyone. And something that gets a little closer to trying to figure out this complex, at least polygenetic disease, in terms of pathways of care, is very exciting. Probably long-term. Uh, very exciting to have something like this occurring. Maybe one more question, and then we'll we'll break. I was just going to ask if uh, there's a certain point where you add, uh, instead of supportive therapy, you start adding preventative. Good question. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah, absolutely, and and kind of in line with the the answer for our. our uh, our, our last individual. I, I'm definitely going to touch specifically on that um, in in the afternoon session. So yeah, I, I, I got to find a way to get you guys to come back, right? So <laughs> like, yeah, and and there's going to be prizes, and like all will be revealed. And there aren't going to so. be prizes, by the way, full disclosure. <laughs> the prize is knowledge. Yeah. Right. Right. So there's that. So we got that going for us. Um, all right. With that, we'll go ahead and break. And I think we are done till 1.40. 40. Fabulous. Thank you guys very much for, their, uh, for being here this morning. <laughs>